is set up in such a way that you are only really allowed to thrive in your faith if you are straight. Welcome to The Dismantle, creating community, not converts. Hello and welcome to Dismantle Podcast, the place for community, not converts. I'm your host, Joey. On this show, we attempt to dismantle an issue that poses as problematic for the Christian church by having a discussion with a guest who has insight or experience with that subject. Now, if you're new to the show, we're not always going to agree, and that's okay, but we're not going to argue because our goal is to build bridges and not barriers. And our guest today is Bridget Eileen Rivera. Bridget, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. It's good to be here. I'm glad we got to connect. Thank you for saying yes. Yeah, I'm, I'm glad that we were able, that we're just able to have a conversation today. It's going to be a good one. But before we dive into that, Bridget, would you mind giving our listeners a little bit about you and some of the work that you do? Yeah, so um, I do a lot of work around LGBTQ issues in Christianity. I am a Christian. I am a lesbian. Um, I'm also celibate. I follow traditional, I largely follow traditional teaching on um, sexual ethics and scripture. Um, but most of my focus um, in terms of the work that I do is related to LGBTQ advocacy. Um, my book, Heavy Burdens, which is releasing in the fall, is kind of unpacking the discrimination that LGBTQ people experience in the church and kind of trying to help the Christian community understand what it's like to be queer and the harms that are done often in the name of Jesus to queer people. So that's my book, Heavy Burdens. That's probably one of the major things that I'm doing is LGBTQ advocacy um, and I'm also getting my PhD currently in sociology. You're killing it. That's fantastic. <laughs> yeah. Well, thank you. <laughs> which, which sets up some of the conversation we're going to have today. And some of that is around sexual identity and faith. It is Pride Month and we're excited to have this conversation and appreciate you being so open and willing to share with us. But I think to start the conversation, Bridget, I, I you know, maybe this is a dumb question, but I think it's important to ask how did Christianity, a group of people who, who proclaim to be following Jesus, become so consumed with being anti-queer in the first place? I mean, are, sexu are sexual ethics really what Jesus meant and what he was talking about with the Sermon on the Mount, or have we completely and totally missed what he was talking about? Yeah, I think this is a really important question. And I think in order to specifically answer how did Christianity become so associated with anti-queerness, you kind of got to dial back to kind of look at some of the historical developments over the past century and a half. And one of the big things that you got to really unpack is Freudian psychology. And uh, Freud is really the one who popularized concepts like heterosexuality, homosexuality. And uh, he developed this theory based upon the uh, idea that heterosexuality is what is normal. When humans develop, they develop in such a way that 
their relationships with their parents over time caused them to uh, eventually develop as heterosexual human beings. And uh, when this developmental process goes awry, when there's some kind of issue um, in the parental relationship, um, if there's some kind of trauma that takes place, then that development gets thrown off and instead of becoming heterosexual, children grow up and become homosexual. And um, he popularized that whole concept. Um, And the whole purpose of it was to kind of have a framework for understanding sexual perversion, how sexual perversion comes to be. Um, And Freud believed it was this developmental thing. Um, And because of those theories that Freud developed, people really latched on to them uh, and uh, they became popular almost overnight. And uh, what we see is the concept of homosexuality prior to this period had never existed in scripture. Um, The word homosexuality was not in the text. Um, Even just the concept of sexual orientation uh, was not, understood at all. Um, but after Freud popularized these concepts, um, the idea of defining people by their sexual attractions kind of like overnight became this just assumed framework for thinking about human identity. Um, and then in 1946, the word homosexual made its appearance in uh, scripture. And that was really a um, major moment where the word had never existed prior in scripture. The concept had never existed prior, but now suddenly out of nowhere, the Bible has the word homosexual and the Bible can be quoted saying that homosexuals are condemned and going to hell. Um, And that is really a major, major turning point because now the Bible says homosexuality is a sin. Homosexuals will not inherit the kingdom of heaven. And so now you have this whole theology around the concept that homosexuals are um, inherently sinful or going to hell. Um, So that's like the first major uh, thing. Um, And then the second major thing is uh, the politics in 1970s, the formation of the religious right and um, Jerry Falwell's influence. Um, What you see during the 70s and the 80s is um, gay people were really used as this kind of boogeyman to create this fear that all of American society is Falling, up, falling apart and gay people are to blame um, because they're attacking the family, they're attacking Christian values. Um, and so gay people kind of became this boogeyman and became very, very attached to politics. Um, and those two things, the appearance of homosexuality in scripture as this thing that's condemned that had actually never been condemned in scripture before. Um, And then the attachment of homosexuality and gay people to uh, whose political side you're on uh, just really kind of cemented 
the queer community as um, just these enemies of Christians everywhere. It's fascinating to to see that relatively in a short amount of time that this has been the case. Uh-huh. But then my mind goes back to what the ancient church was experiencing, the early church. A newly ascended Jesus is gone. The Holy Spirit falls. Now we're bringing in people who we don't know, Gentiles, Jews, all these things happening. What was Peter and Paul's approach to uh, homosexuality, to homophobia? You know, was there anything that we can point to to say, actually, this is not how we should be living because the early church did this? Well, the short answer is that homosexuality was not on Peter and Paul's mind at all. Um, The whole concept of homosexuality did not even exist during the time of ancient Rome. Um, And that kind of sounds bizarre to people because we are so programmed in our modern culture to define sexuality by sexual attraction. But in ancient Rome, sexuality was not understood as an expression of sexual attraction. Sexuality was understood as an expression of power, as an expression of dominance. And so Paul's primary concern would have been addressing this exploitative environment that existed in ancient Rome. Um, Obviously, sexual attraction existed. It's not like human beings were, you know, different things um, 2000 years ago, but how things were defined, how things were understood um, was very different than today. Today, we understand sexuality as an expression of who we are attracted to. Whereas 2000 years ago, sexuality was an expression of who we dominated, who we had power over or who we were dominated by um, and who had dom- dom- who had power over us. And so it was a completely different system. And Paul's primary concern would have been with this system. Uh, and we see this in his writing over and over again. Um, Paul's. Uh, Paul's whole push, as well as Jesus's, for no divorce, um, that principle addressed the very real problem of husbands abandoning their wives and leaving them with nothing, leaving them destitute so that they had no choice but to go into prostitution. That was very common. Um, And uh, getting rid of divorce addressed that very real issue that existed at the time. Um, even the concept of a, a one flesh union, um, that was essential to deconstructing the Roman idea that female bodies were inferior to male bodies. And in fact, were not even fully human. Um, and in ancient Rome, there was this idea that, um, male bodies were fully human bodies. Female bodies were, uh, basically kind of this perversion of the male body when they were developing in the womb, things went wrong slightly. Um, and so women were inherently inferior to men. And so the whole idea that, um, Uh, a woman's body was equal in value and worth to a man's body um, was just nonsense 
at this time. Um, and, you know, then Christians come in and say that, um, no, actually husband and wife are one body, um, and each has equal authority over each other's bodies. Um, that was like transformative. That was revolutionary because like the idea that men and women have one body could have one flesh, um, would have, would have felt the same to them as saying that a man could share the same body with a dog. Um, because that's how inferior women were seen during this time. And so we see in the ways in which in which the early church pushed against and the principles that they instituted at the time, how uh, the ways in which they were seeing sexual ethics, seeing sexuality at the time, were pushing back against this exploitative culture that existed. Um, and that's often lost on us today uh, because, you know, we don't have that cultural framework. Um, and we wind up taking a lot of scripture passages out of context, which is where uh, problems come in with what's often called the clobber passages, which these passages are um, verses in scripture that appear to be talking about homosexuality, even though we know that homosexuality was not a concept recognized in ancient Rome. These are passages that appear from our perspective to be talking about homosexuality. And so people pull them out of context, then use them to condemn uh, LGBTQ people. Um, and the reality is that homosexuality was just not on the early church's mind. There were other issues that they were identifying and working to fix. And you have to understand that context in order to understand what they're talking about and the impact that the early church's teachings had on society. So Bridget, I want to talk about this idea of heterosexism. Before I ask my question about it, can you define what that is? Yeah, heterosexism is the belief that heterosexuality is the natural, normal way that people are supposed to be. And all other sexual orientations are somehow off, somehow wrong, um, somehow a perversion even of what humanity is supposed to be like. Um, and even more than that, heterosexism speaks to the ways in which society is structured to favor people who are heterosexual and to ultimately ex exclude everybody else. So with that definition, could the church, with using chapters and verses, leaning towards a particular orientation, could we claim that the church has heterosexism tendencies? Yeah, I, I do think that that is the case. Um, I do think that you see in the ways in which church culture operates today, um, it is set up in such a way that 
you are only really allowed to thrive in your faith if you are straight. Um, if you're not straight, there's really no space for you. Um, there's kind of this expectation um, that you ought to be married. Um, and of course, you need to be married to the opposite sex. You ought to have a family with kids. Um, and, you know, even beyond that, if, you know, you don't have those things, you ought to be pursuing those things. Um, and it's kind of this idealized heterosexual lifestyle that is kind of elevated as the norm, this nuclear family of a wife and children and, um, you know, involvement in the church that, you know, creates this kind of sense of this is the good life and all other types of life are not desirable. Um, and a lot of people feel excluded by that, but queer people especially um, have no access to living that kind of life. Um, but when you have a church system that is structured in such a way that this is the only kind of life that's really recognized, um, you know, queer people wind up being excluded. Um, and so, you know, you'll have churches that, you know, have couples groups and singles groups and the singles groups are really just geared towards, you know, hooking people up and getting them married. Um, and, uh, you know, you have, um, you know, lots of, uh, family centered events that predicate the assumption that you ought to either be married and trying to have kids or um, else have kids already. And so you kind of see this kind of structure and it really excludes um, a lot of people, especially queer people. So let me stumble through a question and, and probably not going to get it right, but if I wanted to become orthodox within Judaism, mm -hmm. there would have to be certain things that I would do, certain things that I wouldn't do, certain lifestyle choices and habits that I would need to adopt and others I would need to reject. With the church and their view on this, is it wrong to sort of state that this is just sort of what this looks like if you want to be a Christian. Or have we completely misunderstood what that call of Jesus is? Am, am I making sense with the way I'm asking that? Yeah, absolutely. It kind of sounds okay. like you are asking like, okay, maybe these things are, you know, you know, evident in the church, but maybe this is just what it means to be a Christian. And so if you want to be a Christian, this is just kind of the pill you have to swallow. Is that kind of what you're saying? Yeah. And I'm just being devil's advocate with mm -hmm. it. I don't necessarily identify or agree with the sentiment, but maybe that is how some people are seeing this mm -hmm. issue of, well, heterosexism is just normal because we see it within the Bible and our interpretation tells us so. Mm -hmm. Therefore, you need to just fall in line. Is is that problematic with taking an approach like that? Yeah. I mean, first of all, you don't see heterosexism in scripture. In fact, you see the opposite. Um, Paul actively encouraged celibacy. 
um, which was a radical thing to encourage at the time and um, was a source of a lot of social upheaval, especially for women, because in pushing for celibacy and advocating for celibacy, um, he freed women from needing to necessarily be with a man, have sexual relationships with a man. Um, a book I really love, and I'm quoting it all the time lately, um, is uh, Sarah Rudin's Paul Among the People. One of the things that she um, observes is that um, during the time of the early church, um, mythology started to develop, stories started to spread of Christian women seducing their men into celibacy, seducing their husbands into celibacy. Um, stories started to spread of Christian prostitutes. Um, uh, you know, this would be more of a mythology that was spreading of, of female prostitutes turning their clients into rock um, because their commitment to celibacy was so um, passionate. And there really was that whole thing was just incredibly revolutionary at the time. Um, and Paul, you know, actually kind of said that marriage itself um, distracts people from the kingdom of heaven, distracts people from serving the Lord. Um, and you know, it's not necessarily a bad thing, but you know, it could really hold you back from being able to give yourself wholeheartedly to the faith. Um, so yeah, we don't see the Bible encouraging a society that revolves around marriage and the nuclear family. In fact, um, Jesus said, who are my mother and my sister and my brothers, um, my mother, my sisters, my brothers are those who follow the will of the Lord. Um, and he, you know, completely reinvented the concept of family um, and, you know, deconstructed this idea that family is whoever you have a blood connection with and created this notion of family as being whoever you have a spiritual connection with. Um, and so the whole idea that we have today, the whole way in which we kind of prioritize marriage, we prioritize the nuclear family, your wife and your children, and, you know, holding on to that, making that like, you know, the most important priority in your life. We don't see that in scripture. Um, you know, we don't necessarily see scripture treating it as a bad thing. Um, and, you know, scripture also says that if you have a, you know, spouse, if you have children, then, you know, that's a responsibility um, that you need to take seriously in your life. But we don't see scripture elevating it to this place of prime importance. In fact, we see scripture, um, you know, kind of bringing it down a notch um, and even reconceptualizing how we think of family in the first place. Um, so, yeah, I think that's really important to remember um, and also really helpful to understand and kind of unpacking why a lot of these, um, I guess, a lot of this, I guess, obsession with marriage and family is often so unhealthy. So if we're not supposed to be completely consumed with sexual ethics as followers of Jesus, as the church, 
how do we then become activists for things like equality and inclusion and welcoming people into that family, that new family of God as Jesus was ushering in, as you were just describing? Mm-hmm. How do we then do that? Yeah, so this is kind of, I guess, a big debate, how to create a Christian community that um, is healthy for all people, in particular, queer people. Um, How do we do this? Um, How do we make this happen? Um, For me, I don't necessarily believe that uh, people need to change how they believe, what they believe about marriage, how they define marriage. Um, Instead, I think that they need to, just all of us need to kind of um, open ourselves up to the possibility that our own beliefs may not be determinative of right and wrong, that our, that other people's beliefs um, are often just as driven by a desire to be faithful to scripture as ours. Um, and that we are all doing our best to follow Jesus. And that means that no one is a better Christian than the other. Um, and so, you know, when it comes to queer people, I think that churches need to give LGBTQ people the agency to decide for themselves what they believe the Bible teaches about sexual ethics and gender identity. Um, And this means not expecting queer people to adopt your own frame of reference, to adopt your own beliefs, your own definitions, but giving queer people the freedom and the agency and the space they need to come to their own beliefs, their own conclusions. Um, If you, this means if you follow a traditional reading of scripture, then recognize that more progressive interpretations of scripture exist that do just as good of a job making sense out of the Bible as yours does. Um, You may find your own interpretation to be the most compelling one, um, but at the same time, recognize that um, your beliefs are ultimately not the final word, um, that other people are are trying to be just as faithful to Jesus Um, and are equally good Christians as you are, and yet coming to different conclusions. Uh, So all of that means that we need to affirm the equal Christian status of queer people in the church, regardless of what queer people believe about same-sex marriage, gender identity, whether they choose to get married or choose to be celibate. Um, All of these things are ultimately areas that queer people deserve agency in. Um, And that sounds really radical to a lot of people. Like, oh my gosh, like we can't do that. Um, We're going to be giving people license to sin. But I always like to point out that we already basically do this for straight people and the questions that straight people ask about sexual ethics. Um, Like nobody is going to say, I don't know, I shouldn't say nobody because there are many fundamentalists who would take this position, but the vast majority of Christians today aren't going to say that someone who um, believes in divorce versus someone who doesn't 
practice divorce, that one or the other of them is going to go to hell because of those beliefs. Um, you know, most people believe that that's a matter of personal conscience. Um, and the same thing with something like birth control, like most, like, yes, there are fundamentalists who do push very strict ideas of birth control onto people. And it's extremely harmful, um, and does tremendous damage to women at the same time. Uh, most Christians today believe that that is a matter of conscience, that people ought to have the freedom to decide for themselves what they want to do with something like that. Um, And I think it's the same thing with the questions that queer people ask about sexuality and gender. Um, They need space. Um, Give them space and affirm their equal Christian status, regardless of the conclusions that they come to. That's fantastic, Bridget. Thank you. And and thank you so much for being a guest on the show. I've really learned a lot and I really appreciate you sharing with us. Can you tell us a little bit about where to find you online, how people can connect with you, some of the things you have going on? Yeah. Um, so you can find me online at my website, BridgetEileenRivera.com. I'm also on social media at Traveling Nun. You can find me on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook and follow me there. Uh, then my book, my book's title is Heavy Burdens. Um, if you would like to pre-order my book, then that would be great because pre-orders really make a difference in a book's long-term success. Um, so if you'd like to order my book, like to give it a pre-order, that would be amazing. You can pre-order it at Amazon. Um, just type in Heavy Burdens, Bridget Eileen Rivera, or you can also find links to order it on my website. So if like to do that, that would be great. And yeah, if you want to connect with me, you can reach out on social media or on my contact page on my website. That's great. We'll throw it all in the show notes. But again, Bridget, thank you so much for being on the show. Yeah, thank you for having me. It was a great conversation. And that wraps up this episode of Dismantle Podcast. Until next time, don't complain about the things you're not willing to change. Thank you.